The police had no doubt that the letters they received were indeed from the killer himself. Recognizing the urgency of the situation, they made the decision to make the letters public. As news of the letters spread, the public became increasingly concerned, realizing that a serial killer was potentially living among them in Wichita. In response, Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan addressed the community in a press conference, urging them to remain calm despite the distressing circumstances. The intended effect of the killer's threats was achieved. On the evening of February 10, 1978, Chief Lemunyan's press conference sent shockwaves through the public as it became clear that a menacing figure known as BTK was at large and planning to strike again. Fear gripped the community, shattering the notion of leaving doors unlocked. Instead, anxious days were spent peering out from behind drawn curtains, and restless nights were filled with suspicion and unease at every creak or sound. On April 28, 1979, a disturbing incident occurred when 63-year-old Anna Williams returned home around 11 p.m. She immediately noticed that some of her jewelry was missing and promptly contacted the police. Investigation by the police revealed that the intruder had cut her phone lines and gained access through a basement window. However, it wasn't until two months later that Williams received a letter, shedding light on the identity of the intruder. The letter contained a poem titled Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear, expressing frustration that she had arrived home too late, depriving the intruder the opportunity to kill her and experience the desired relief. Along with the letter, there was a sketch and the stolen clothing and jewelry. An identical copy of the envelope and poem was sent to Cake TV, which was subsequently handed it over to the police. These were confirmed to be letters from BTK. Over the course of several years, the Wichita police dedicated numerous detectives and forensic specialists to thoroughly examine the BTK cases, letters, and audio recordings. In 1984, a task force called the Ghostbuster Task Force was established, with detectives specifically assigned to uncover the identity of BTK. Despite an influx of tips, no conclusive leads emerged that could lead to BTK's capture. Nevertheless, the investigation yielded significant findings. All of BTK's murders were within six kilometers radius of one another. This implied that BTK was only prowling areas he was familiar with. Among the Ghostbuster detectives, Lieutenant Al Stewart stated that they explored countless theories, meticulously analyzing house numbers, the victim's length of residency, the phases of the moon, and delving into books in search of obscure connections to mythology, witchcraft, and demonology. Their approach encompassed a wide range of possibilities in the pursuit of unraveling the mysteries surrounding BTK. Eventually, the task force ended in 1986. Despite all this, BTK would strike three more times after the formation of the Ghostbusters. In May 1985, the body of 53-year-old Marine Hedge, a supervisor at the Medical Center coffee shop, was found seven miles from her home along a dirt road. Nearby her body was a pair of knotted-up pantyhose. An autopsy revealed she died by strangulation, and police investigation revealed that Hedge's phone's lines had been cut and her car had been stolen. 
But because the body was moved and she was not bound, this case was not considered part of BTK. It wasn't confirmed until much later that this was the work of BTK. In September 1986, Bill Wagerl returned home to a devastating discovery, his wife, Vicky, lying on the bedroom floor, having been strangled. Vicky was swiftly taken to the hospital, but unfortunately, she did not survive the journey. An autopsy later confirmed that her body had been bound at the wrists and ankles, and she had been strangled with nylon stockings. Surprisingly, there was no evidence of sexual assault. It was apparent that Vicky had fiercely fought for her life, as a significant amount of DNA evidence was found under her fingernails, which was carefully preserved for future reference. During the investigation, it was noted that Vicky's driver's license, car keys, and car were missing. Eventually, her car was located two blocks away on the same day. No leads or suspects emerged from this cases as there was little to go on. Investigators entertained the possibility that it could be a BTK-related murder, but Bill remained the primary suspect and it followed him for the next 18 years. BTK's final victim, Dolores Davis, met her tragic fate in February 1991. Her lifeless body was discovered beneath a bridge in northern Sedgwick County. Dolores had been reported missing since January 19. Her hands and feet were bound with pantyhose, and she died of strangulation. Adjacent to her remains, investigators stumbled upon a white decorative mask of the feminine variety. The detectives noted that the intruder had entered through the rear door after severing the telephone line at Davis's residence. Despite the unsettling similarities between Dolores's murder and those of BTK's prior victims, detectives faced the challenge of definitively establishing a connection. Unlike his previous acts, BTK had not claimed responsibility for these particular killings, and furthermore, the bodies had been moved from their original locations, adding an additional layer of complexity to the investigation. As leads dwindled and BTK fell silent, public interest waned, and the residents of Wichita returned to their daily routines. However, unbeknownst to the public, law enforcement tirelessly worked behind the scenes, steadfast in their determination to solve the enigma of BTK. The case remained a haunting unsolved mystery, capturing the attention of many. Over the years, multiple forensic psychiatric profiles were meticulously conducted, seeking to unravel the identity and psychological makeup of the elusive BTK. Here are some commonalities describing BTK. White male possibly in 40s-50s. Blends in well with the normal population. Drives a nondescript vehicle, likely American-made. Sexual sadist. Narcissistic and antisocial. Lives in a lower to middle class area. No prior records and not a known criminal. Sane, but a psychopathic. Enjoys being discussed in the media and people guessing who he is. Not until 2004 would BTK resurface, seizing the spotlight once again. 
January of that year marked the 30th anniversary of the Otero family slayings and the Wichita Eagle, in an article speculating on the killer's whereabouts or demise, unknowingly ignited a startling chain of events. The publication acted as an unintentional catalyst, reigniting BTK's insatiable hunger for attention and recognition. In response to the article, BTK commenced an unexpected surge of communication over the next two years, encompassing letters, photographs, puzzles, and sketches. The narcissistic flame within BTK had been rekindled, fueled by the inadvertent reminder of his notorious presence. Starting from March 17, 2004, over two decades later, BTK embarked on a series of communications and package deliveries to the Wichita Eagle, Wichita Police Department, and Cake TV. In his initial package to the Wichita Eagle, he included a letter and photographic evidence linking him to Vicki Wegerl's death. Furthermore, he cleverly included driver's licenses as clues, hinting at his method of entry for certain victims. Subsequent packages contained suggested chapter titles for an autobiography of BTK, covering various aspects of his life, murders, and motives. These packages also contained additional photographs, sketches of his crimes, and detailed writings specifically focused on the Otero murders. Additionally, there were objects taken from the murder of Nancy Fox, along with a disturbing representation of her and Josephine Otero in the form of dolls in bondage. Detectives were uncertain about the credibility of the potential biography, which delved into various aspects of the killer's life. Nevertheless, they chose to make it public, hoping to find any lead that could aid them in their pursuit of the elusive murderer. In the beginning of 2005, BTK included a request to communicate via floppy disk in one of the letters he sent to the police. However, prior to doing so, he inquired about the traceability of floppies. The police, in an attempt to deceive BTK, responded on February 16, 2005, by placing an advertisement in the Wichita Eagle, using a code phrase previously used in BTK's latest letter, Rex, it will be okay, implying that floppies cannot be traced to their computers along with a contact address. The ad successfully prompted a response, and less than two weeks later, BTK sent another package containing a floppy disk. This particular floppy disk contained a single message, this is a test. It proved to be the breakthrough the police had been waiting for. Forensic teams meticulously analyzed the metadata of the floppy disk. For those unfamiliar, metadata refers to information about data, such as file creation details or the identity of the creator. Even when a file is deleted, this information can often still be retrieved. The metadata yielded significant clues, including references to the Park City Library, Christ Lutheran Church, and the name Dennis. A quick internet search led investigators to the church's website, where they discovered Dennis Rader listed as the president of the congregation. They had finally found their man. As the authorities already possessed BTK's DNA, they obtained a DNA swab from Dennis' daughter for comparison. The DNA was a match, leading to Raider's arrest on February 25, 2005. The following day, 
The news of BTK's arrest spread throughout Wichita, bringing a collective sense of relief to its residents. Shortly after his apprehension, law enforcement authorities swiftly conducted raids at both Dennis Rader's residence and church, seeking further evidence and insights into the dark secrets he had kept hidden for so long. Raider's residence proved to be a treasure trove of incriminating evidence linking him to all of the BTK murders. Among the discoveries were hundreds of Polaroid pictures portraying Raider in self-bondage, mimicking his victims at the crime scenes. Numerous sketches and drawings resembling those sent to the media and police were also unearthed. The search yielded an abundance of equipment and materials directly associated with his heinous acts, including ropes, cords, and tapes, along with macabre trophies from his past killings. Furthermore, Raider's computer contained categorizations for each victim, dehumanizing them in a chilling manner. The Otero murders were labeled as Project Little Max, Catherine Bright as Project Lights Out, Shirley Vian as Project Blackout, and Nancy Fox as Project Fox Hunt. Additionally, a multitude of folders containing information on potential future targets were discovered, hinting at Raiders' twisted plans. As expected, the profiles of BTK meticulously crafted by forensic psychologists and behavior analysts throughout the years turned out to be remarkably accurate. Dennis Rader, despite his chilling crimes, presented himself as an unremarkable individual on the surface, enabling him to effortlessly assimilate into society. Dennis Lynn Raiders was born on March 9, 1945, in Kansas. His father served in the U.S. Marine Corps before working for the Kansas Electric Utility post-World War II, and his mother a bookkeeper. During his youth, Raider joined the Boy Scouts and participated in group activities at the Lutheran Church. Raider displayed introverted and withdrawn personality traits very early in his childhood and was a below-average student in school maintaining a C average. It was during this time that Raider admitted to developing fantasies about domination, bondage, and torture, which had already surfaced while he was still in grade school. Several profilers have assumed there was likely be some childhood event linked to sexual pleasure associated with watching a living creature suffer and die. As a youth, Raider harbored a dark secret, he enjoyed killing cats and dogs by hanging and strangling them. Despite this disturbing behavior, Raider was described as a normal, polite, and well-mannered individual. By the time he reached puberty, he had already developed intense fantasies of tying up and sexually assaulting girls. These fantasies played out like a movie in his mind, and he was determined to see them come to life no matter the cost. Actress Annette Funicello, a mouseketeer on the original Mickey Mouse Club TV show in the 1950s, was a particular favorite target for his twisted bondage fantasies. During his youth, Raider only engaged in social activities related to his Lutheran church or the Boy Scouts. As a member of the Boy Scouts, he learned the art of tying knots that would later prove useful in binding his victims before killing them. After graduating from Wichita Heights High School in 1963, Raider took a break from his studies and worked at a local grocery store. In the summer of 1966, at the age of 21, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. 
During his time in the Air Force, Raider developed a disturbing habit of peering through window blinds to watch women undress. He also began breaking into homes to steal women's undergarments. Less than a year following his return from the service to Wichita, on May 22, 1971, Raider married a young woman named Paula Dietz and eventually had two children. He worked many odd jobs and in July 1973, he found employment with Cessna, a small aircraft manufacturer, and with Coleman, a camping gear company. In late 1973, Raider was let go by Cessna. He suddenly found himself unemployed. In a bad state of mind, unhappy, and with free time on his hands. He slipped deeper into the dark fantasy world that he had known since childhood and wanted to know just what it would feel like to strangle a woman with his bare hands until she died. He was obsessed with pornography and liked to daydream. He began to enjoy what he called trolling, which meant driving or walking around certain neighborhoods and school campuses with young women for him to observe and lust over. Dennis stalked women as they shopped alone in grocery stores. He planned to hide in the backseat of their cars and kidnap them at gunpoint. He would focus on a good prospect and then enter into his fantasy of bondage, sex, and murder. Most of his victims were chosen through his trolling after which he would begin to stalk them and plan their murder. He had also trained himself how to kill and avoid detection and learn to tie knots and nooses. He continued trolling for potential victims and fantasized about bondage and violent acts. It wasn't long before fantasizing wasn't enough and he decided to target real people. Raider was compelled to act on his obsessive fantasies which began with the Otero family murders in 1974. Confronted with an immense volume of circumstantial and physical evidence that connected him to every BTK murder, Raider, in June 2005, entered a guilty plea for all ten counts of murder. In a bone-chilling account, he provided detailed recollections of each crime. It was further revealed that Raider had used false IDs and pretended to be maintenance workers or private detectives to gain entry to some of his victims' home and gain trust. Once inside he got compliance by using a firearm. In August 2005, Raider received a sentencing of a minimum of 175 years in prison without the possibility of parole. This represented the most severe sentence the judge could impose, as Kansas did not have the death penalty in place. Raider's methodical and horrifying acts of violence had terrorized the community for over three decades. Through the diligent work of law enforcement, forensic teams, and the cooperation of the public, a vast array of evidence was gathered, ultimately leading to Raider's identification and apprehension. The case served as a chilling reminder of the darkness that can lurk within seemingly ordinary individuals and highlighted the crucial role that forensic science and behavioral analysis play in solving complex crimes. With Raider sentenced to a lifetime behind bars, the community could finally find some solace, knowing that the reign of terror inflicted by the BTK killer had come to an end. That concludes this episode of The Dark Diaries. We hope you enjoyed this segment about the BTK killer. Until next time, stay curious, stay brave, and stay a little dark.